Welcome to another episode of the Cornet Northern California Chapter Podcast. This is Melissa Pacey, Principal at HGA Architects, member of the Leadership Council of the Northern California Chapter of Cornet, and your host today. Our podcast features Heather Belfour and Amber Sciatta, both with the JLL research team. Heather Belfour is a research manager for Silicon Valley and directs all aspects of local industrial, office, and economic market research. Amber Sciatta is a senior director of research for JLL's Southwest region. She specializes in economic and demographic analysis, industry trends, and real estate forecasting. As the co-lead of JLL's technology research platform, she's an expert on talent, innovation, and infrastructure trends impacting the industry today. Amber frequently advises her clients on site selection with an eye toward macroeconomic trends and workforce feasibility. Both Heather and Amber worked with Rosen Consulting Group prior to joining JLL. Today, we are going to focus on the demographic trends on the heels of the release of the 2017 to 2018 census data. I know that many of you are interested in where the talent is and where you should locate your next office, so stay tuned to find out more. I also would like to thank our first ever podcast sponsor, Service Master. Their single mission is to get you back in business as quickly and safely as possible after a disaster strikes. Their vast experience combined with their broad reach ensures that you benefit from fast response times no matter where you're located and no matter when an event might occur. They bring together the people, the drive, and the performance required to restore your commercial business to full working order while minimizing interruptions to you. At Service Master, their business is putting you back in business. Welcome, Amber and Heather, both to the podcast. I'm so excited to have you today. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Amber, for the $500 million question, where are the best locations in the U.S. for tech talent currently? Talent is king. Wherever there's a deep talent pool, there's great opportunity for growth. We have been tracking tech markets across the United States at JLL for the last eight years. Me and my colleague personally have been producing research that takes into account many, many data points in in order to help our clients better understand where growth opportunities are. And what we've discovered over the years is that it really does come down to the talent base. Um, So the answer is it depends, right? But the markets that typically come to the top, the top five really are New York, Los Angeles, um, Washington, D.C., and uh, Dallas and Chicago. We actually looked at 26 different variables across 200 markets in the U.S., and those are the top five markets that came up as the best opportunity for tech companies to grow within. That's really interesting. Could you look, uh, take a look and tell us a little bit about the things that you're using to measure against? Absolutely. So, you know, because a lot of the work that I do and my team does uh, when it concern, you know, as it concerns occupiers and corporate real estate folks, um, you know, we're in the room helping them figure out where where can I grow? Where should I locate? And the reason that um, you know I'm there as a researcher is really just to provide insight on, on what the opportunities look like and um, what does the future look like? Because when you're making a site selection decision, right, you're thinking for the future, you're thinking about your workforce, you're not thinking just a year down the line, you're thinking 10 to 15 to 20 years down the line. So in this report, the research that we're doing um, this year, you know, we have our total ranking, which I just went over. Um, But we also broke down the 
overall score into three sub-indices because not every market is the same and not every market is going to be a good fit for every company, right? Because everybody has different growth strategies, different markets, different um, workforce priorities, right? So this year, the total score is made up from three sub-indices. We've got the momentum index, which is looking at the size of the talent base, how much it's grown, how deep the industry is, how much innovation is happening in a market. So really, you know, how strong is the tech base? Uh, the second sub-index, uh, sub, sub I should say, is the talent index. Um, so this isn't the tech labor pool per se, but this is really looking more forward into the future. What does the population look like? What does the Gen Z, Gen, uh, sorry, Gen Z, Millennial, and Gen X population look like? Because that's your core workforce, especially for the next 10 years. Um, what does that workforce look like um, in terms of growth? Um, and then how smart is that workforce, right? How many bachelor's degrees, associate's degrees, and how many of those are STEM degrees? Um, and then the third index looks at cost favorability and accessibility because, you know, at the end of the day, when you're making a decision, it's all about the bottom line. So you may have the talent base, you may have uh, a lot of smart young people in a market, but what kind of cost factors are you looking at? What does your real estate cost look like? But more importantly, what does your housing cost look like? How many new units are in the pipeline? So how much can you grow in a market? Um, what does your tech average tech wage look like in a market and how much has that grown? So again, it's really looking at the three main components that a lot of occupiers are thinking about today. It's the momentum, is there a there there? It's the talent, is there a base to grow from? And it's the accessibility and the cost factors. How much is it really gonna cost me? I thought we could talk a little bit about the recent shifts that are happening with migration patterns um, across the US. So um, maybe one of you could start by kind of giving our listeners a rundown on what's going on. The first thing I think to kind of, there's three main, I think, recent shifts um, that are kind of occurring nationally. The first is a population seems to be kind of shifting from larger to smaller metro areas. The second is that Americans are kind of starting to move out towards the suburbs and the exurbs again. And the third is that immigration is really kind of sustaining a lot of the population growth in a lot of these larger metro areas because there is so much domestic uh, migration, um, out-migration from some of these larger, more expensive metro areas. So the first, um, in terms of the population shifting from the larger to the smaller metros, it's really something that's started to happen in the last couple years. So before the Great Recession, um, smaller metro areas, uh, population growth-wise, they were growing at a faster rate uh, than the larger ones. And this is in large part due to um, you know, it was happening at the time in the housing market and people wanting to get out there and purchase homes. There was, you know, opportunities and job opportunities, so there was a greater mobility everywhere. And then when the recession happened um, and there was less job opportunities, that means, you know, less mobility. So people kind of started, stopped moving so much in between metro areas. And once the recovery started to begin, um, people started to concentrate and, or, you know, start to go towards more of the urban core areas and larger metros. Some of that was because there's just there was more job opportunities in those areas and also some of the millennial preferences at the time, uh, going there for job opportunities, um, you know, greater amounts of amenities, um, kind of just pulling people in. But then the last two years, these numbers have kind of started to reverse. 
So um, some of the research uh, that I'm citing here comes from the Brookings Institute. Um, and they're just analyzing census data, but for metros that have 500,000 people or more, um, the, these rates have really started to decline. So between 2017 and 2018, which is the most recent census data, and about um, the top 20 metros for population, all but five of them showed a significant slowdown, if not a decline in population. So this is really kind of the first year that we're really seeing this change, whereas before it was just kind of consistently growing in these areas. Um, so that's an interesting trend that seems to be shifting. And a lot of this is linked to, you know, and again, this isn't pervasive everywhere, but the suburban housing market is improving, millennials are aging, they're starting to kind of move out of these urban cores in the exurbs, if you will, to the areas right outside the urban cities. So this is kind of, I think, the reason why some of these shifts are happening. And among the 70 something urban core counties that are in the nation that have about like 500,000 people or more, uh, about 50 of them showed slower growth or declines within the same time period as well. So uh, for example, Denver County, San Francisco County, Gwinnett County, which is in Atlanta, and Harris County outside of Houston, they all showed significant changes in population from their outside of their urban cores. And then lastly, the immigration is now driving population growth in more areas than ever before. So domestic migration really drives a lot of these trends, right? But in these more expensive, especially these more expensive coastal metros, foreign immigration and is kind of sustaining the population growth. That hasn't changed, it's stayed really elevated. So it's really do the domestic migration that's kind of driving these changes. That's really interesting. And I heard you talking a little bit about um, San Francisco County and um, the coastal metros. Um, could you give us a little bit of color on specifically what's happening in the Bay Area? Sure. In the Bay Area, there's something, a pattern that's kind of occurred, especially within the last like few years, where many of the young people, the young professionals moving here tend to be highly educated, high-income individuals. and. Some of them have, um, you know, just because they have high incomes, that doesn't mean that they have a lot of wealth, so a lot of wealth accumulation, right? And some of this is tied to just unprecedented levels of student debt and kind of graduating at a time, if it was earlier in the decade, where there maybe wasn't as many job opportunities. So the wealth accumulation is low. So it's really hard for these younger people to move to these higher cost markets and kind of lay down roots. So after a few years, they want to kind of make a lifestyle change. Um, they'll kind of, you know, a lot of them are moving to these secondary markets, have you will, to kind of, they, they could get paid even a little bit less, but their money will go much further. So there's some type of income sorting that's starting to happen in the Bay Area where those that are moving in are higher income and lower income residents are moving out. So we just did some analysis of this um, using uh, data from the census and also using some data that the Turner Center at Berkeley put out as well. And households that are moving in, about half of them make 100,000 or more and 20% make at least 200,000. And everyone else makes that are moving out, pretty much half of them are, make under 100,000. So there's just this income kind of dynamic that's happening here. And if you have all these high income individuals moving in, that's just gonna further push up the rents because they can stretch their incomes further. That's not to say that these high income individuals won't eventually 
move out as well. <laughs> but it's kind of, that's the trend that's happening. And also, you know, with the congestion in the Bay Area and the traffic as well, it's just kind of pushing more people towards the lower income counties, or not lower income, I'm sorry, but more affordable counties, you know, such as Alameda, Contra Costa. So as people move out towards there to find more affordable rents and houses, it just increases traffic congestion and it kind of creates more of this income sorting that we're seeing. And this is happening across the country in many tech markets as well. That's really interesting, Heather. Could you tell our listeners a little bit more about income sorting? Sure. You know, it's it's really that the individuals who are arriving here tend to have higher incomes than the ones that are leaving. You know, a significant number of out migrants from the Bay Area are moving to generally like lower cost, uh, more affordable markets such as uh, Sacramento and Central Valley. It, whereas the ones that are moving in, they're either coming from other countries or they're coming from other generally higher cost metros like New York City or Los Angeles, for example. So it's just, um, and, and that is not, it's starting to occur over time, it's starting to affect people in higher and higher levels of income, right? as prices continue to go up and this sorting continues. So it's, you know, maybe a few years ago it was happening with people more um, below the 100,000 range of incomes and now it's starting to happen even uh, affecting people, households that make above 100,000. Wow, that's really interesting. Do you have any data that lets us know how many people left the Bay Area last year? Within the last three years, uh, so the, you know, just to give you, because I think in one year it doesn't really give you the full uh, picture as much as the last like three years on aggregate. Um, the region, so that's San Mateo and Santa Clara County or Silicon Valley, gained about 62,000 foreign immigrants to the area, but they lost, but we lost about 64,000 domestic residents to other parts of the United States or California. So you know, in balance, that's a negative total net migration, um, again, mainly because of the domestic residents leaving. But the foreign immigration has just been very, very high and hasn't dipped at all. And in Santa Clara County alone, uh, 16,000 domestic residents left in 2018, um, just in 2018, and about 16,000 foreign immigrants moved to the area. So it's kind of the same, right? The amount of domestic is leaving. the leaving is about the same as the amount of foreign coming in. So it's a huge amount that's kind of balancing it out. That, that is really, really fascinating that we're losing so many people, yet immigration is playing such a strong role in kind of replenishing that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a little bit surprising to me that that's happening. Could you talk a little bit maybe about um, how that's happening or, or why? You know, these foreign immigrants, again, coming out from outside of the United States, they're coming into the Bay Area um, for many different reasons, some of which is because of you know, the H-1B visa program and companies you know, pulling in this talent from elsewhere. Um, and also, these people are attracted to the ample job opportunities and the large innovation cluster here. And they generally you know, are highly educated and make higher incomes. Otherwise, they wouldn't choose you know, or wouldn't probably come here because it is so high, the cost of living is so high. So that's kind of why it's been sustained for so long. And again, to going back to the point about the, the income sorting, the people who have been here, you know, from since the beginning of the decade, uh, these domestic residents, again, domestic residents doesn't mean they're from the United States, it just means they're currently already residing in the United States. 
um, you know, after a few years of living here and um, dealing with a higher cost of living, you know, they're making these decisions after a while to maybe move on, move on to another location that's more affordable. But, um, you know, so some of those foreign in-migrants who've maybe moved in a couple years ago, that may be showing up in the data too. They may be leaving after a couple years and because they would be counted into the other bucket if they've already been living here. But it's just kind of interesting that that's kind of basically sustaining population growth. And it, that's happening in New York, that's happening in Detroit, that's happening in St. Louis, Milwaukee, and in the Bay Area. Otherwise, you would see probably negative population growth if it wasn't for the uh, foreign immigration that's happening. That's really fascinating. Um, maybe we could shift and talk a little bit about millennials and how maybe they're having a big impact on the demographic demographic data. Sure. So I know um, we had talked a little bit earlier about you know a lot of the millennials wanting to kind of put down roots. Do you want to talk about kind of how that's impacting where they're starting to reside? Sure. You know I think a lot of millennials because of the unprecedented unprecedented level of student debt that, that that generation has incurred and then just you know because of the Great Recession and also the latter end of the Generation X as well losing many jobs because of you know the Great Recession it just really dipped into the wealth accumulation and so these higher income um, educated population, millennials, I mean, with every generation, the population is only becoming more and more educated. So they are generally um, taking in higher incomes. But when you also look at previous generations, the incomes that they're making out of college aren't that much higher than other generations, but yet the cost of living is so much, right? So they're stretching their incomes further and they can't save. So it's really hard for them to put down roots. So after a while, you know, when they're younger and they're kind of you know, trying to grow their career, that's all, that's fun. But then as their preferences shift over time, they maybe meet someone or they just kind of want to lay down those roots, then that's kind of why they're moving into the smaller metros or the lower cost areas in that kind of income sorting is starting to happen. And something interesting to highlight is the Bay Area is ranked highest in the nation for high income renters as a share of total renters. So this is just interesting to point out because again, it points to their the difficulty in kind of laying down roots in places such as the Bay Area that are high cost. So high income renters are the fastest growing housing segment currently in the United States. And in areas like New York and Los Angeles, there's a large amount of them, um, you know, just because there's large populations there. But San Francisco is much smaller than those areas. And uh, so is San Jose in general. So they, but they're ranked as the top two metro areas in the nation for high income renters as a share of total renters at above 20 percent. And this share increased substantially since 2010, about 10 percentage points. So. You know, a large number of factors are responsible for this. It's the uh, large amount of just high-income migrants moving to the areas, the lack of single-family construction and multifamily construction to meet demand, and an increase, um, you know, in just barriers to home ownership, and also the, the high demand for living next to high amenity areas or urban cores that tend to be more expensive. So this is just why you have these people that make a lot of money that are just shelling out and willing to shell out a lot of money for these high rents. But because of that, it's not very sustainable and some of them will eventually make the choice to move. And that doesn't mean move outside of the Bay Area entirely. You see a lot of people moving to 
the um, less expensive, in general, less expensive counties of Alameda and Contra Costa so that they can still kind of stay in this area where there's these innovation jobs, but then they're commuting in. That's increasing congestion, right? And it's just kind of further perpetuating these trends and making those areas more expensive too. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I wonder for you know our end users who are listening out there, there's obviously an attraction to be in these innovation centers because that is where all of the talent is coming. But then obviously with the numbers you were citing earlier about how many people are then leaving these metro areas because it's not sustainable, you know, how we, you know, bridge that I think is an interesting problem. But then thinking more about, you know, the high income renters, obviously we have a pretty large subsect of the um, working population right now that is millennial um, and probably planning to purchase a home in the near future. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, so according to uh, Compass Research, which is, you know, taking a lot of data from, you know, again, the California Association of Realtors and, um, you know, Freddie Mac surveys and things like that. Um, but. 90% of millennials are planning to purchase a home in the future. So, you know, I think a l when these trends were starting to occur, where you saw all these younger professionals moving to these high cost markets and wanting to live in downtown areas, everyone questioned, are their preferences changed? Like, you know, in comparison to other generations, is this here to stay? But I think that the desire to kind of have that white picket fence is still there. And I think maybe it's changed over time. Maybe they don't expect to have you know, a large home, but they still want to own something. So, you know, at the current rate of savings, particularly among millennials, about 70% of them will need about two decades to sock away the 20% down payment for a house. And then that only increases the share of millennials, only increases that will the amount of time if they live in like San Francisco or another really expensive place. So you can imagine that you know, the desire to purchase a home will really be driving locational decisions in the future. Absolutely. And so um, what's interesting is thinking about those millennials and how, you know, how maybe the demographics will switch as they start to get a bit older and maybe um, our, you know, our end users out there can start to think about, you know, do they start to have like sub areas? Like I, I, you used the word earlier, um, exurbs. Mm -hmm. um, and so maybe you could talk about the exurbs a little bit. It's a, it's a new term for me. I became aware of that term through just doing demographic research and reading articles um, from the Brookings Institute and Pew Research Center, particularly Bill Frey, which is a very famous like demographer of the Brookings Institute. And um, I don't know if he coined the term exurbs, but you know, it's an area not too far from an urban core. And um, oftentimes when you study those uh, dynamics, you're looking at urban core counties, so counties that have maybe like large populations, so 500,000 people or more called urban core counties. And then you're comparing them to neighboring counties or neighboring areas around it with like a slightly less population. And so the exurbs are the areas right outside of, of such counties. Um, that's how some people look at it and talk about the data. Other people just kind of, if you're not analyzing the data, you can call an exurb, like for example, the, Rich, the Richmond district of San Francisco. It's a more suburban-like area within an urban city. Um, and that too, because of the desire to purchase 
homes or the desire to have more space, I think, is pulling younger professionals out there. But it, but those places still tend to be more expensive because they are locationally closer to the urban cores, which tend to be more expensive. This is a very like um, metro-specific thing, though, right? I mean, that's definitely the case in San Francisco, but may not be the case in other metros, where maybe the downtowns aren't as vibrant yet. and. Uh, maybe the suburbs are the more expensive areas. So again, this is a very locational specific thing, but I think um, the accessibility factor of being able to have more space and maybe being able to purchase a home, um, but still getting to the amenities that you want is what millennials really want, right? And so that's why um, a lot of companies and tenants are thinking about downtown San Mateo and downtown Redwood City and these areas that are, have transportation nodes, with the highways and Caltrain, but have access to amenities right there. And it's that live, work, play thing that I think the exurbs are really calling to some of the you know, older millennials now and causing some of these shifts that you're seeing. I'd like to point out for all of our listeners, Amber and Heather are very generous and have put together a really amazing report that dives more into each of these indices as well as um, the tech locator index that they've created, which is a composite of all three indices. And we'll make that available um, along with this podcast for anyone who's interested in reading that and digging a little bit more into the details of it. What really drove you to create this report because I think it's something that's very helpful to a lot of our end users. Our clients are asking, where else can we grow? Like we've reached our max in the Bay Area and we are starting to um, really hit our head against the wall when it comes to talent, finding housing for this talent, but we just don't know enough about other markets to know if there's an opportunity in a place like say Nashville or Milwaukee or Cleveland. And so we started to expand our report over the years to include every single market in the US because what we realized is that tech isn't just tech. Everything is tech. The whole world is technifying or digitizing or going, you know, to the to to new systems and platforms and all of that change is just really driving tech throughout the country because every industry now is trying to figure out how to do that. So um, so it's just, it, it really has, it really was predicated on a, on a need and, and a demand from the client side just to kind of figure out what next. Uh, I feel fortunate that I was able to spend a little bit of time with this report and it's really, you know, a lot of fascinating things, but a lot of unexpected things in here as well. And I was wondering if you could talk about a couple of the things that came up that really surprised you personally. Well, you know, I think the first thing that surprised me was that, going through all the variables, getting you know our methodology down, ranking the models, uh, sorry, ranking the markets. Um, because you know the way we come up with that final score is we obviously combine all the sub indices, but that tech locator index, that final score is um, what a lot of people like to look at because everyone loves a top 10 list, right? So I think the first surprise this year was that New York and LA are number one and two. Because you think about tech and you think about the momentum and the industry and, and you always think about Silicon Valley and San Francisco first. It's just, it, it's a given. But because we're looking at momentum and future sustainability and just opportunity for company growth in these markets, it may not be so much of a surprise then that New York and LA are number one and two because they have the largest talent base, in fact. Um, well, I should, I should go back and say that New York has the largest talent base LA is actually number three. DC has the second largest talent base, but it ranks third in our model because 
it doesn't score as favorably in terms of growth. So there's certainly a large tech base, but not as, as much growth as you might expect. Um, a couple other surprises that I think are interesting. If you look at markets that have added the most tech jobs over the last five years, um, a couple surprises. New York is number one. That's not a surprise because when you're that huge, you're going to add a lot of jobs, 51,000 in five years. Silicon Valley is number two, so 38,000 jobs uh, added in the last five years. And I should note, these are people who are occupied in computer or math jobs from the OES survey. This is not the same as the establishment survey. Heather and I can nerd out on this all day if you need, but just know that sometimes you'll see different numbers than the headline numbers because we're using a different data set, but I digress. So um, number 10, which I think is interesting and probably very telling because of the cost of living factors, is Phoenix. Phoenix has added 20,000 jobs in the last five years, and that's on a base of only 76,000 as of today. So that market has seen a tremendous amount of growth. And we're seeing a lot of our, um, you know, even our clients in the Bay Area looking at Phoenix more than ever before. The concentration of the population with a STEM degree, the number one market is Boulder, Colorado. 34.4% of the 25 plus population has a STEM degree. So that's pretty impressive. Number two is Silicon Valley, 32%, probably not. Um, now, looking at the cost factors, I think this is where a lot of our occupiers tend to hone in, especially those who work in, uh, you know, the CFO, you know, with the CFO or who work closely with HR because they're thinking about the workforce, right? Um, the cost of living factors are, are, are tremendous. You know, we looked at not just the cost of living index, which is a pretty standard index, but we looked at average apartment rents, uh, apartment rent growth in the next, um, in the last three years. And we looked at the number of housing units that are set to deliver over the next five years. So what does the future growth look like? So Amber, one of the things I noticed on the cost index is that New York is pretty uh, close to the top, which I was a little bit surprised about that it would be so high up on that list given, you know, that it was historically one of the most expensive places to live. Absolutely, yes. So the reason that you see, um, New York rise to the top there is because the data set that we use so that we could get apples to apples comparisons across markets is the MSA level. So that for New York is the New York tri-state area, essentially New York, New Jersey, and um, Eastern, Pennsylvania, uh, Eastern Pennsylvania. So with that said, there are some more affordable communities that still provide pretty easy access to New York, because New York also has a really great infrastructure and transit network. Um, so it, you know, if you look at New York, the median home price for the New York Metro is only 428 as of the time that we pulled the data. The median home sales price for the Long Beach, so LA, Orange County Metro area, number two in our ranking, 686, which you know, as somebody who's trying to buy a home, I wish it really was 686. It's really not. Just like I'm sure somebody in Manhattan really wishes the median home price there was 428. But because we're using the MSA level, which is the broader census definition, um, it's capturing data for a wider uh, area for a lot of the cost of living factors. Now, if you look at the cost of living index, New York City is number, uh, well, it's last, but it's number one in terms of how high it is at 207. Um, so, so because the cost index is taking into account a couple of different things, not just, um, you know, 
the cost of living index per se, but also housing, how many units are delivering, um, how much home prices have changed in the last five years, because some of that indicates, you know, are people getting squeezed out? And a lot of those factors look really good for New York as a metro area across the board. So hence, it is actually not, um, not too far off the top on the cost index. Thanks so much for joining us today. To stay up to date with the Northern California chapter, please follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter at Cornet NorCal. We'll also post JLL's quick guide to tech markets with this podcast for those of you who want to dig in a little bit more. If you like our podcast, please subscribe on iTunes and share on social media. We'd love to keep this conversation going and want to hear what's on your mind. As always, please share your thoughts and comments on our LinkedIn page under the post for this episode. I'm Melissa Pacey, and I will talk to you next time.